We're going to read from the scriptures together now, and we're going to turn to Luke's gospel and to Luke chapter 8. If you're following along in one of our pew Bibles, you'll find our reading uh, beginning on page 865. Page 865, we're picking up our reading in Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Uh, We are going to read down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 56, but there are a couple of bits that we're just going to leave out and probably return to at another stage. So Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. Here we have three stories involving the Lord Jesus. And what we're going to do tonight is take a broad look at these three stories together. So Luke 8, beginning at verse 22. This is God's word to us. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there in the hillside, and they begged him to let let them enter these. So he gave them permission Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them, how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then we drop down to verse 40. It says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. In In the next part of the story, Jesus is delayed. He deals with a woman who has a discharge of blood. But then we pick up the reading in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. 
But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Now let's take our Bibles at this point and turn to Luke chapter 8. Uh, you'll find that passage on pages 865 and 866 of the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning it up, let's pray together. Father, as we would turn up the story of Christ as we find it in Luke chapter 8, it is our simple prayer that his would be the glory. We pray that as we consider these stories that we have known since we were little children, we pray that you would teach us something new from them. Help us to realize who Jesus is and to bow our hearts before him. For we pray in his name. Amen. One of the worst tendencies of the human heart is to exalt and trust in other human beings. Uh, by trust, I mean that we look to others for salvation. Uh, we do that on two different levels. We do it on a micro level in that we try to find in personal relationships something that can only be found in God. So, for example, in desiring a spouse, we might desire a good thing, but when we say or think, I will be complete when I am married or when I find a boyfriend or a girlfriend, we're exalting and trusting in other human beings. We also exalt and trust in other human beings on a macro level. We, we do this without knowing it, I think. We do it without meaning to do it. We do it when we think that a new appointment or a new person in charge will bring the change that we think is needed. How you spot this in your heart is to think of times when you've been disappointed when your side, inverted commas, your side, has lost an election or an important vote. It's good to engage with what's happening in our world and to know, that, to know of the decisions that are being made on our behalf, but we must always remember, remember that there is a higher throne, that there is one to whom we all must bow one day. One of the worst tendencies of the human heart is to, exalt in, uh, is to exalt and trust in other human beings. Do it on a micro level, and we do it on a macro level. In terms of the macro level, the Bible is consistent in giving us reminders about finding our hope in other people. Rulers, politicians, presidents, prime ministers, queens, kings. Listen to Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. There's a hint of what God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.19 there. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And that applies to everyone who has ever, stood, who has ever set foot in this world. Yet, yet so often... We make the mistake of thinking that someone, another dust-made person, will do something that only God can do. Which brings us to one of the most important teachings of the Christian faith. The fundamental, base-level, ground-zero teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
The word Lord in Greek is the word kyrios. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Lord over 700 times. You'd think we'd remember. But so often we make the mistake of thinking that someone, another dust-made person, will do something that only God can do. Jesus as Lord is something that theologians down through the ages have written about. Let me give you uh, two short quotes from two theologians, one Dutch and one Scottish. The Dutch theologian is Abraham Kuyper, and he once wrote the following. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Simple quote to understand. Jesus owns everything. Every square inch that we see belongs to him. Here's the second quote. It comes from Andrew Melville, who was a Scottish Presbyterian minister. In 1592, Melville addressed King James VI in a famous speech. There was a lot happening in Scotland at the time in terms of church and government. The two were intertwined in a way that is unfamiliar to, uh, unfamiliar to us. But this is what Melville said. He said, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. As well as King James, there is Christ Jesus, the king of the church, whose subject James VI is and of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. It's a slightly more complicated quote, but Melville is essentially saying that Jesus alone is lord. There may have been another king in Scotland in 1592, but Jesus is king and lord over all. Now you may have heard the phrase, Jesus is lord, but never quite understood the implications of it. Here's what it means in simple terms. If Jesus is Lord, then he owns us and has the right to tell us what to do. If, if he is. How can we know that he is? Well, that's where the lengthy passage we've read this evening comes in. We can know that Jesus is Lord by reading the Bible and specifically reading Luke chapter 8. We're studying, studying Luke at our evening services at the moment, and we've only just returned to the series last week. We've read three stories this evening, and initially I thought that we would look at each story individually. We may still do that. We have some flexibility in that way. But because we're meeting around the Lord's table tonight, and also because of what has happened this week, I thought it might be helpful to remind us of one of the most important things that we believe as Christians, that Jesus is Lord. In Luke 22, 50 to 56, that is what we see. And we see Jesus' Lordship in three different areas. This section of Luke reminds us that Jesus is Lord over creation, that Jesus is Lord over demons, and that Jesus is Lord over death. We're going to take each of those points in turn and just dip our toe in each of the three stories. We don't have time to look, look at each story in minute detail, and we will perhaps come back to them. In taking each of these points in turn, we'll, we'll hopefully be resolved to never make the mistake of thinking that another dust-made person can do something that only God can do. Jesus alone is Lord. First of all, Jesus is Lord over creation. In Luke 8, 22 to 25, we have the story of Jesus calming the storm. Now, this is one of, if not the most famous miracle of Jesus, of Jesus told in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the story. Uh, the story is virtually the same over the three Gospels with only slight differences in the accounts. Luke says that one day Jesus got into, his, uh, into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. 
And so they set out. Jesus goes for a nap. And then the boat is caught in a storm. And Mark emphasizes the suddenness of the storm. Luke simply just says, a windstorm came down on the lake. Now that happened all the time on the Sea of Galilee, even though it's only five miles wide and 13 miles long. The, the geography of the Sea of Galilee is unique. The sea itself is an incredible distance below sea level, and it's sur surrounded by imposing mountains with deep ravines. The ravines serve as huge funnels that, that bring winds whirling down on the lake without notice. The winds are sometimes strengthened by a buildup of heat in the low valley, which sucks the cold air downwards. Now, I'm not auditioning for Barra Best's job there in talking about the geography and the weather of the Sea of Galilee. But the point is that sometimes on the Sea of Galilee, storms like the one Jesus and his disciples find themselves caught up in just happen. Out of nowhere, in the midst of calm, quiet evenings. The storm is serious enough for the disciples to have serious concerns about their very existence. They waken Jesus and say, Master, Master, we are perishing. The storm has disturbed them and, and caused fear in their hearts. But Jesus is utterly calm. Look at what he does. Verse 24. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. The wind stops immediately. There's a sudden calm. People explain this all the time when they preach in this story, but you know that when a storm begins to die, the waves continue to smash the shoreline before calming slightly to hit the shoreline, before calming again to simply just lap the shoreline. But here there is a sudden calm. There's an eerie silence, as if a great hand has just brushed away the wind and, and, and pressed down the sea. What actually happened was that someone spoke to the wind and sea, the same someone who spoke to them in the beginning when they were created. In this story, this regularly repeated, often retold Sunday school story, Jesus is revealed to be the Lord of creation. Remember, if Jesus is Lord, then he owns us and has the right to tell us what to do. He owns the wind and the sea. He created them. And in this story, he tells them what to do. Namely, calm down. Please stop. This storm is over now. He's Lord of creation. There isn't a square inch of creation that he doesn't own, that he doesn't know about, that he hasn't made spin, that he hasn't thrown into its place, that he hasn't made in, in just the right way so that it does something very specific and very important. Jesus is Lord over creation. Do we see him in that way? Do we understand that the same Lord of, the crea of creation is, is the one who sustains it and upholds it? One of the things astronomers say is that our galaxies are like rafts on a cosmic river streaming toward the unknown. But actually everything is moving toward consummation in Christ because all things were created through him and for him and he is the Alpha and the Omega. Lord over creation. L Lord over demons. That's the second area of Jesus' lordship that we have revealed to us in Luke chapter 8. Jesus is Lord over demons. After his confrontation with nature's storm, Jesus now confronts an equally violent storm in human nature. Luke 8, 26 to 39 tells us of Jesus' confrontation with the demoniac who lives in the country of the Gerasenes. Now, I know that when I was off during the summer, Andrew Mullen preached in this story from Mark's gospel, 
For that reason, I'm assuming that you remember the details of the story. C.S. Lewis once said that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. He said one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. The story of the Gerasene demoniac in Luke, Luke 8 affirms the biblical reality of Satan and his fallen evil host, but it doesn't encourage an unhealthy fascination. In this section, we see how Satan operates and his purposes, but more importantly, we see Jesus' power revealed. J Jesus is confronted by this possessed man as, as soon as he steps off the boat that he's just been in. He's confronted on the morning after he calms the storm. A man called Legion, verse 30, is possessed by many demons, hence his name. A Roman legion consisted of 6,000 foot soldiers as well as 120 horsemen and technical helpers. To Jewish minds, the word or name legion brought to their, to their minds an image of great numbers, efficient organization, and relentless strength. A host of evil spirits confront Jesus through this possessed man, and that is what Jesus meets. Great numbers, efficient organization, and seemingly relentless strength. But what happens next points us in the direction of Jesus' power, of Jesus' lordship. Let's read verses 32 to 36 again. It says, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there in the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. The night before, a single word from Jesus had flattened the raging sea. Now in the morning light, a spiritual storm is calmed with a single word. Only God could do this. Only someone who is Lord over demons could do this. But that's who Jesus is. Jesus had undone Satan's work. He restored his image in the life of this profoundly spiritually disfigured man. The former demoniac goes from being possessed to rational, controlled, at peace, and in communion with God. It's an incredible transformation, and it's a transformation that is impossible apart from God. Jesus is Lord over demons. Before, before we move on, just a word on demons today. They're not so common in our continent. They're certainly not as common as they are in, say, Africa. But our culture and society is being undone by other things that we run to. In the third verse of the hymn, Lord, for the years, we sing and pray for our land. In this, our generation, spirits oppressed by pleasure, wealth, and care. Satan doesn't need to be active, need to be as, need to be as active in our land because there's enough to distract us. Pleasure, wealth, comfort, that's what people live for. But those things, when unchecked, do as much damage and harm as a legion of demons in a person. And only Jesus can truly transform someone who is oppressed by those things. J Jesus is Lord over creation. 
Jesus is Lord over demons. And then finally, Jesus is Lord over death. Our final point comes from Luke 8, 40 to 56. There are actually two stories in this section. The story of Jairus' daughter and the story of the woman with the discharge of blood. I think we will come back to this story at least because there's a lot going on here. What happens is fairly simple to understand. Jesus is approached by a man called Jairus and his daughter is dying. Jesus makes his way to Jairus' daughter, but his progress is slowed by a woman who touches his cloak. He basically stops his movement to Jairus' house, but in doing so, Jairus' daughter dies. You see that in verse 49. In verse 51, Jesus goes into the house and sees lots of people weeping, and he says, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. The mourners laugh at Jesus because they can see with their eyes, they know that the girl is dead. But Jesus was interpreting death from God's viewpoint. True death, eternal death, is the separation of the soul from God, not the soul from the body. Her dead body was asleep, but Jesus would bring it back to life. Look at verses 54 and 55. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. Can you hear the words? as they fall on the child's cold, dull ears? Can you see her eyes blink, dilate, flutter into focus? The first thing she saw when she wakened up was the face of Jesus, the Lord of death. And then she saw the tear-stained faces of her mother and father and the astonished faces of the disciples. Death, the very thing we fear the most, the thing we cannot escape, cannot run from, cannot hide from, cannot avoid. And Jesus is Lord over it. The story of the raising of, ja the story of, the raising of Jairus' daughter is the climax of this entire section. Calming a storm is one thing, healing a demon-possessed man is another, but raising a dead girl to life this is something else. One person, has written about these story, one person who has written about these stories says this. They've said, Amid the towering walls of water on a storm-tossed sea, Jesus cried out, Be still, and the sea instantly lay flat. Confronted with a pathetically demonized man, the spirits pled with Jesus not to send them to the abyss, but he did with a word, first to the, through the, the swine and then to the eternal pit. But he's also the one who can raise the dead. He can do anything. He is, he is sovereign. He, nothing is too great for him. He can save us. He can restore us. He can meet our most desperate need. Jesus is Lord over creation, Lord over demons, and Lord over death. What does it mean for us, for Jesus to be Lord? It means that we listen to him means that anything he asks us to do should be no problem at all. It means that we should be sad that someone great has died, but not inconsolable because there is a higher throne. And one day we will meet the Lord. Listen to what the first day of heaven and of all eternity will be like for those of us who know and love Jesus. Creation will be under his control. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea, that great biblical symbol of chaos and disruption, the sea was no more. Creation under his control. The demons, gone. And the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Demons, gone. Death, gone as well. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What One day we will meet the Lord, and if we know him, one day we will experience all the blessings of his lordship and glory. We're nearly done. I want to tell you a story. It's a story that has come from what has happened in the past week. A commentator on the BBC spoke this week of one of the more unlikely friendships of recent times, the friendship of the Queen and Billy Graham. By background, culture and class and calling, they, wouldn't, they, they couldn't have been more different Yet they enjoyed each other's company, and despite some people silently wondering why, when Graham came to the UK for his crusades, the Queen would always invite him to visit her, preach to her, and stay for lunch to discuss the scripture passage. In his autobiography, Just As I Am, Graham recounted one such lunch. He told the Queen he wasn't sure which passage to choose, and he had toyed with, but then decided against preaching from the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda in John 5. Her eyes, he wrote, her eyes sparkled and she bubbled with enthusiasm. I, I wish you had, she exclaimed. That is my favorite story. It's hard to imagine two more different people. John 5 talks about a cripple for 38 years with no one to help him. And then there's the, the queen who's, who's scores of servants. But he needed to hear Jesus' words of healing and salvation. And so did she. In the last months of her earthly life, the queen had suffered with her own mobility problems. But not today. Not now. Because my monarch, your monarch, was also my sister and your sister. And we'll see her again standing on steady legs before the throne of the king she knew, loved, and served, before the Lord of creation, demons, and death itself. We realize that she, just like us, was a member in Jesus' kingdom. So often we make the mistake of thinking that someone, another dust-made person, will do something that only God can do, but we're thankful that she pointed us to him. And he calls us to come just as we are. We don't need to dress up. We don't need to, to clean up our act. We don't need to put on a show. We simply need to come. And in coming to him, he promises to deal with our sin, to deal with our brokenness. And he promises to forgive us and to put us where we could never imagine being, at his table, beside him. We're thankful that Jesus has saved us. We're thankful that he has given us, given us visible symbols, these, these earthly elements before us, 
to remember what he has done. We're thankful that this table is only a foretaste of what the Lord of everything will provide for us in eternity. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us exalt and rejoice and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has been made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We're thankful that it's because of Jesus that we have a seat at the king's table, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. A seat at the table of the Lord of creations, creation, demons, and death. A seat at the table with our Savior and friend. Let's pray to him now. Fathers, we have considered these well-known stories, these old, old stories. We thank you for what they simply teach us, that Jesus is Lord over everything. Lord over creation, Lord over demons, and Lord over death itself. We thank you that he has defeated death at the cross and so invites us to come to him. We pray that we would receive him tonight through faith. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and that having heard that Jesus is Lord, we would listen to him and say that nothing that he asks us to do is too great or difficult. Father, bless us as we have fellowship now around your table, for we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.